This episode is brought to you by North Texas Honda Dealers. North Texas Honda Dealers, they're here to help. He has time, launches it to the end zone. Touchdown, Terrence Williams. Goes to the right side for Crabtree. It's caught. He put, oh, he's going hard. Welcome, everyone, to the Republic of Football final Sunday recap edition, at least one where we'll have uh, kind of the, the, the set, a set of games. We'll probably do some recaps after various bowls or whatever. But as far as weeks, designated weeks of games, this is the final recap edition. I'm your host, Ishmael Johnson, of course, here with producer Malpal. Mallory, how are you? I'm doing well. Glad to be here. Glad to be yeah, here. Yeah, I'm sorry. Sorry, I had to watch Michigan hoist a Big Twelve, t- a Big Ten title, but you know yeah. it is what it is. That was a that was a terrible game. Terrible. Game. <laughs> I, Iowa was... did not deserve to be there, but that's a discussion for another day, another <laughs> another podcast that talks about that. <laughs> and of course, as always, Mike Craven. Mike, how are you, man? I'm hanging in there. How are y'all doing? Yeah, yeah, hanging in there, man. Glad you're feeling better. Uh, slowly getting getting better. You know, not hundred percent, but still. Uh, it's I'm not at as 80, bad as I'm at eighty percent, which is about eighty percent better than I was the last time we did one of these podcasts. Yeah, so zero we'll percent take... on Wednesday. <laughs> was it was bad. Wednesday was my low. Wednesday, <laughs> Wednesday was a tough day for me. There was a lot of muting going on on your part to make sure that uh, <laughs> that we didn't hear any uh, coughing or things like that. So, uh, so anyway, yeah, we're just gonna jump right into it. it shouldn't be that long of a show, you know, only. Three games, we'll touch on a fourth. Uh, of course, we'll touch on the FCS game, and then there was some coaching news as well in the FCS ranks uh, drop after that game. But we're going to go in order. We're going to go right from Friday night, uh, just jump right into it. UTSA 49, Western Kentucky 41 in the Alamo Dome Conference USA Championship. I mean, third largest crowd in UTSA history, I believe, over 40,000. UTSA, we talked about how that game, we were asking if UTSA could win another way or if they needed to win another way. The answer was not really. They didn't need to. It was the similar script. Uh, the difference was Western Kentucky actually jumped up first, 7 nothing, but then UTSA just absolutely stormed back in. Um, similar script to where the drives they held Western Kentucky to field goals were basically stops or basically turnovers, and UTSA got up big and just like their first game, Western Kentucky, when they finally got clicking, they were playing catch up. And so despite, I forgot what Bailey Zappi finished with Ava right here. Uh, he finished with, Jesus, just insane production. Uh, 577 yards through the air, four touchdowns, two picks. And he, again, he, he played great, but the big thing was when they finally got that offense clicking, they were already having to come back. And eventually they, they did. UTSA's play calling kind of got a little bit stale for a little bit in the second and third quarter, or mostly third quarter. Um, and that let Western Kentucky come back into the game. Jared Stearns finished with 179 yards receiving. Um, but in the end, at where it was Frank Harris the last game, it was Frank Harris and Sincere McCormick in, you know, an absolute tandem effort to pull this one out for, <clears throat> for UTSA. Sincere McCormick finishes with over... 200 on the ground. Frank Harris plays fine. You know, he, he did, he did, he did, he didn't have the stellar game that he did the last time, but he's still over 200 yards passing almost hundred yards on the ground himself. And 
I mean, that stadium was absolutely insane. And to hear it at that capacity um, was just phenomenal. There's not many games in UTSA history with a home field advantage where, where truly the, the crowd made a difference. It absolutely did on Friday night. You could feel mm-hmm. it even from the television. Uh, Jeff Trailer talked about it after the game where, you know, like that, that transition into the fourth quarter, the fans really got it going again and kind of rejuvenated um, the football team. This is going to sound weird for a defense that gave up 577 yards. I know, right? Uh, but they played – well right Mm -hmm. I mean you know they only gave up 13 points in the first half they forced a couple field goals they came up with a few interceptions uh they on special teams they they recovered that buff punt in the third quarter to really build momentum coaches talk about complimentary football all the time and most of the times we roll our eyes because that just means playing well in all three phases and everybody wants to do that Uh, but UTSA really did that this week right like the defense played well in the first half. The running game really helped the passing game. The special teams came up with a few plays. Every phase that they needed to win, they came up with just enough plays. And that's been the storyline for UTSA all year. They've come up with just enough plays to win. And to me, that's a team that's coached well, and it's a team that believes in themselves. Like you could tell, you know, they're up, you know, at one point, what, it's 42 to 13, yeah. you know, at one point, and it's like, okay, this game's over. And then all of a sudden, Western Kentucky just marches back. And what's crazy about Western Kentucky is they can just stay in their normal offense, right? Like they didn't have to do anything differently uh, to come back. A lot of teams would see that comeback happen and you fold. And instead, the defense made one more stop. The offense made one more drive. The special teams did one more good thing. Um, can't say enough about Jeff Trailer and this UTSA team. Uh, they did a lot. I, I just I thought it was too much for them this year. I thought eventually – you know, kind of the hubcaps would fall off. Mm-hmm. They just kept going. They just kept going. And again, on Friday night, they did. And I think for the first time in 10 years, it felt like San Antonio truly embraced that team as a city. And uh, that's going to be really big moving forward for the Roadrunners. It feels like they have as much momentum as they've had since that opening game 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I think that when in that third quarter and early fourth quarter, um, I think when the when UTSA really got into, I think it was at that point, it might have been 34-42, or like I think UTSA might have, uh, Western Kentucky might have cut it to 42-49. Um, they really got in a, Western Kentucky's defense did not play well during that stretch to me. I think UTSA really got into a shell play calling a bit. And it was it was a little bit ironic because I tweeted out, I was like, I don't like Barry Lunny's play calling right now. Um, but then all of a sudden, uh, I think it was, I'm trying to think, I think it was like they had a, they converted a, four, a third, fourth and short. And then on that first down, it was like two minutes to go. They took a deep shot right to uh, Corey and Clark. And it was like, oh, there it is right there. And then they scored. Right. And so like they gave him that balloon again. Um, and yeah, that was like, that was, I think they realized, okay, we're getting a little bit too conservative here and we can't keep holding this team off forever. And uh, they took that deep shot and it was a great throw, great catch. And that that ended up being just enough. And surely enough, it was almost a carbon copy script of their first game because, mm-hmm. you know, the Western Kentucky defense gets a stop and then they have a chance to go down the field and, and they get past midfield and it was like okay well what's kind of happening here and then of course they have to kind of have a last minute heave that falls short and gets picked off but i mean just a it's wild how that exact same script almost worked to the t right in that first game 
yeah, UTSA did what they needed to do. They started fast and and were able to make that big uh, point deficit towards the, mm-hmm. I guess, the third quarter. And yeah, like you said, it was just too much for Western Kentucky to come back. And I really, I got a little scared for a minute. I thought that they were going to make that final comeback, but I think it was, they got a ball back with like a minute left. And then it just looked like it was too much for, for Zappy and that offense to, to finish that final drive. <clears throat> I mean, Clarence Hicks and that defense deserve some credit. They were able to get a couple mm-hmm. sacks there late um, to put them behind the chains. Sincere McCormick. You know, he didn't have, like, maybe the year we all thought he would have. You know, like, he didn't rush for, like, 1,800 yards and 25 right. touchdowns and some of those stats we may have thought. But in the big games, you know, Memphis, right, mm-hmm. when they're down 21 points, uh, this game, you know, UTEP, in those big games, you could tell Sincere McGormick put this team on the, on his back. 200 yards in a conference championship game, uh, really excited for him. And then just to look at that roster – Jeff Trailer talks about that 2-1-0 triangle of toughness. And I, yeah. I'm one of those people that can roll my eyes at some of the coaching cliche type things or whatever. Uh, but he inherited a roster with 11 San Antonio players on it. And when you looked at that game on Friday night, a lot of those 11 were making some big time plays, right? Frank Harris and Sarah McCormick, Rashad Wisdom, uh, Spencer Buford. You know, those guys are big cornerstones of that team. And you look at the roster now, and there's 29 players from, you know, the 2-1-0 on mm-hmm. that team. It really is a San Antonio football team. And for San Antonio, as somebody who went to school there and somebody, you know, grew up in Austin, and San Antonio never gets the respect it deserves as a football city. The amount of talent that's there, it just, it just doesn't get it because Houston and Dallas and then Lake Travis, Westlake and Austin tend to get all the press. For a team from San Antonio consisting of San Antonio players – to go win a conference championship, I think it's a big deal for that city. And it, it gives a lot of pride to that city. And it should kind of platform, jump board uh, that town into kind of a little bit more respect on the football landscape. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that uh, during the summer, Tepper and I did a segment on TFT where we kind of analyzed each FBS team in Texas and how many Texas like players they have on their roster. And UTSA, I think, ranks second. Uh, in Texas for having the most Texas guys on their roster, which I know we were talking about San Antonio, but it, you know, kind of proves that a little bit. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that <clears throat> looking a little bit more at the, at the a little bit of wider part of the game, that's a good point because like, I do wonder because Jeff trailer, the thing about Jeff trailer and the thing that's been interesting about this recruiting cycle for UTSA is that, you know, Frank Wilson started that, you know, kind of roping off San Antonio, right? Jeff Trailers embraced that and he's kind of, kind of do it a, another way. The thing I'm interested in, and this is kind of where the project, the greater Jeff Trailer project, will, uh, where that becomes of interest to me is he's not necessarily, I think the winning will help them get in, win some big recruiting battles, obviously, but he's not necessarily going after the four stars for Texas, right? Where you maybe, theoretically would think like, oh, maybe they could poach a guy from Texas or AM, you know, one one a recruiting cycle or something. He's going at his roots in high school football. He's going to these far reaching places to where somewhat reminiscent of, of Gary Patterson, right? To where you go to that two A school, you go to that three A school, you go to that school in the Valley, you go to that school in East Texas, right? And San Antonio's almost become you know, they're option A now, right? They, they know that if they want a kid at Judson, if they want a kid at 
Steele or Brennan or Brandeis or whatever, they know that's their option A for anybody in that city. But now they're going to start looking for these far-reaching places that aren't, you know, on just look at 247. They're probably they probably have a bunch of guys who are three stars, maybe two stars. But ask anybody who covers football in the state, they're gonna be like, Yeah, that guy's great. Like, you know, that that guy's really good. You know, uh Brandon Tennyson from Gilmer is somebody who's not getting a lot of love and he's a UTSA commit. Um, I'm trying to think of a couple others, but the point is that's where the greater Jeff Trailer project is gonna kind of really flourish, is that where TCU used to make its money on those kind of guys, Jeff Trailer's like, okay, yeah, now I'm gonna start kind of finding that because it, for a while, UTSA was some of that, the, that that region, right? Because there were guys that weren't getting looks from bigger programs, right? Sincere McCormick, despite being despite playing for Judson, wasn't some insanely recruited player, right? Uh, Frank Harris, his best other offer was probably Baylor at the time, and Baylor wasn't in a great spot. So, like, he wasn't highly recruited either um, as far as top-level programs. So, yeah, I don't know. I love, I love the strategy. I, I hope it pays off because – I mean, obviously they can develop talent. They're doing it with a roster that was probably underdeveloped before them. Um, and and I hope that they this this new, this kind of revamped strategy continues to pay off for them uh, because I think it's fantastic. And it's not only that UTSA is going to those places and, and finding those, that, that this is a matter of respect, right? This is yeah. why a Joey McGuire hire at Texas Tech makes sense. Those schools are calling him, right? It, it's... It's these places that you maybe, you know, you don't get to recruit that often, but a coach goes, hey, you know, Jeff, known you for 30 years. I got this running back over mm-hmm. here who's legit and nobody is looking at him. You know, I wouldn't lie to you. You need to come by, come by and stop. And that, that is how that works, right? It, so um, I think you see a lot of high school coaches in the state rooting for Jeff Trailer, wanting that program to be good. And wanting their players to go play for a guy that they know and trust and like. And so you add the success to that. And now all of a sudden you're going to get more and more phone calls. I mean, I'd imagine Jeff Trailer woke up to 2000 text messages from high school coaches. Right. Yeah. And he wants that program to be the place where, yeah, you're not 6'4", 290, running a 4'4", and have five stars. Come to UTSA. We're going to win football games. Like that's, that's what he wants it to be. And now he put a flag in the ground that said, look, I win. We can win these mm-hmm. games. And uh, it was a huge win for UTSA. Had they lost that game, we're having a different conversation about what the Roadrunners are, right? You know, they kind of lipped to the finish. They struggled against Southern Miss. They barely beat UAB. They got embarrassed against North Texas. Uh, it could have faded away into where it became this weirdly disappointing 11-2 and two season, right? Like, it would have been absurd to talk about. That would have been a talking point among the fan base and, and from the outside that they just couldn't finish. Instead, with that win, all of a sudden, UTSA is that next darling G5 program with teams like Houston and Cincinnati on their way to the Big 12. They really can become a Boise State, a Memphis, one of those teams that's thought about year in and year out as that G5 team that's kind of teetering on the edge of, of being relevant in a big way. And that's all you can hope for if you're the Roadrunners. Yeah. I think one last thing I want to hit on, Texas ties. Of course, we've talked about Bailey Zappi this year. Jared Stearns, Wax, Waxahachie graduate. I'm so, that's the best receiver in the country this year. It is a joke that he was not a finalist for the Boletnikoff. That one touchdown he caught, he's, not a, he's like 5'9". 
and Bailey Zappi threw that. He overthrew that on him, and he absolutely—I forgot who, what defenders he was over. But Jared Stern's vertical on that one snag in the corner of the end zone, tap two tap, got both his feet down in the end zone. Like that was an absolutely absurd grab. He finishes with seventeen hundred yards receiving this year. Like, I don't know voters to me who did not have him as just didn't watch. They didn't. They didn't watch Group of Five football. They did not watch Western Kentucky, and. Yeah, I don't because you could say that because I feel like the argument was, oh, it's just an air raid guy. That offense, Bailey Zappi is great, but that offense does not work if you don't have him open basically every single play. And UTSA basically had to say, yeah, that guy's probably going to be open. We just got to tackle him basically. Like he's going to catch the ball. He's going to guarantee at least eight yards on a slant or a cut or something. And we just got to be able to wrap him up when he does catch it. And hopefully the field shrinks enough to where he doesn't hurt us. And there, there's no other player in the country this year that was like that. So I don't know. I had to, Bailey Zappi, of course, deservedly gets a lot of the plaudits, but Jared Stearns to me this year was just as impressive coming into FBS and just dominating the way he did. That Stearns DNA is something else. <laughs> Seriously, man. Seriously. All right. Moving on to uh, Baylor. All right. Big 12 championship. Baylor 21, Oklahoma State 16. Uh, this one was nuts. This one was one of the, one of my favorite games of the year. I think, honestly, we, we had questions about Blake Shapin coming into the game. Um, you know, is he ready for this kind of, uh, this defense, this spotlight, uh, there's film on him now, what's going to happen. And at least for the first half, he, man, this guy was nearly perfect. He, they, you know, credit to Jeff Grimes for giving him the perfect play calls. I mean, you know, they, they try to balance the run, but I mean, the run wasn't that effective. It was mostly him connecting on big plays and doing well. And so I think, you know, you had Baylor go up and I think uh, Jim Knowles defense really tightened up in the second half. And again, Baylor really could not run the ball. Um, And they forced Blake Shapin to kind of be a little bit more conservative in the second half. And then that defense kicked in. And then you get Spencer Sanders having probably his worst game of the season at the worst time against a really good defense. And I mean, that, I mean, he looked uncomfortable from basically from the jump, the whole game. And I got to credit the defense on that because they knew that that's a, again, we mentioned how combustible of a quarterback he is or potentially could be finishes with four picks sack twice, just caught. They basically had to make everything happen with his feet. Um, and Baylor comes away with the big 12 title. And Again, we talked about how Oklahoma State, arguably in modern history, this was probably their biggest game, you know, to get a chance to go to the playoffs, cement their chance. And Baylor came out with an absolutely insane game plan on both sides of the ball um, to, to come away with it. Of course, ending on a, a goal line stop, which there's a frame on that play, on that stretch play on fourth down. There's no way you if you see that frame, there's no way he doesn't score. And then just, I forgot, I, I didn't want to give credit, so I'm going to try to go back and watch it while you're talking. Um, I want to give credit to the corner who ran him down, but absolutely insane close down to stop him literally at the one on fourth down to, to preserve the win. I mean, they had four tries. They were on Baylor's yeah. two-yard line and had four tries to get into the end zone and just couldn't yeah. do it. it was if just- I'm an Oklahoma State fan, I am pissed that Spencer yeah. Sanders did not run, like they did not have an option to run the ball like for him that because like that that was literally the only way they were effectively moving the ball was when he was getting out of the pocket and just like getting something going and they didn't call one 
RPO option for him, design run or anything. It's like, I don't, I mean, they called one pass and I'm like, I don't know why you would risk passing the ball with him right now. Like, I don't know. It was, it was, if I'm an Oklahoma state fan, I am upset because you know, Jalen Warren, Jalen Warren wasn't in the game, so they couldn't, you know, get him. Um, and so they had the stretch play and then, yeah, just gets caught at the, I don't know, but phenomenal finish. That Baylor defense was stellar the whole game, basically. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if there's a, enough words in the English language for me to sum up my love for Dave Aranda. Like just, just his whole aura is just tremendous to me, right? Like from the way he coaches defense to his just like stoicism on the sideline, like yep. the, the clip of like, how his face was going into that fourth down play and then what his face was after the fourth down play. Like it didn't change. Like he <laughs> is a man after my own heart, right? Like he just absolutely tremendous. And his team plays with that same poise. Yep. You have a red shirt freshman quarterback who is playing without his right arm. Like he didn't have his throwing arm for the last two quarters. You knew it felt like Baylor could have played six more quarters and wasn't going to score another point. Right. I mean, they couldn't make field goals. You know, they couldn't run the ball. Their quarterback is injured. That was all defense. And a lot of teams panic in those situations and they lose that football game. And you, you afterwards, it's like, well, our quarterback was hurt. You know, what are you going to do? And instead Baylor made stop after stop after stop. Oklahoma state ran 17 plays inside of Baylor's 10 and scored seven points on those, on those plays. Right. Hmm. I mean, they, they were tremendous. They were absolutely tremendous. Terrell Bernard, incredible. Dylan Doyle, incredible. Jalen Petrie, probably the best defensive player in the state. It's just amazing to me what Baylor has been able to do. I mean, think about what Baylor has gone through in the last five, six years as a program. From the Art Bryles fallout to Matt Rule bringing them back up and then him leaving. And then from 2020, I mean, there may not have been a team that was hit harder in the pandemic uh, than Baylor during 2020. For that same group of guys to kind of come back together, rebound, stick together, not transfer out, not go to different spots, stick together, and then go win a Big 12 title game uh, with your backup quarterback and a running game that's getting shut down. Just overly impressive. Absolutely an impressive performance from Baylor. And that defense is all-timer. You know, like they they have earned, you know, Robert Griffin is kind of, you know, like the guy there, right, at Baylor. Mm-hmm this defense is going to be right there. Number two, you know, like guys like Jalen Petrie, Terrell Bernard are going to be looked at in that same stratosphere because they delivered something that most of us before the season would have never expected to be possible. Yeah. I think when um, I was looking at the stats and Baylor held Oklahoma state to a 36% success rate, the entire game. And by the definition, that stat success in, in college football is determined by on first down 50% of the yards for a first down on second down, 70% of the yards and hundred percent on third and fourth. And they held them at 36%, which means they were behind the chains. They did not let them. And then they, then I think they also forced Oklahoma state to be very conservative in times. They, there were a couple punt decisions that were really questionable. There were a couple field goal decisions that were very questionable. And I feel like if you're going against another defense, you're probably like, let's just go for it on fourth down a bunch of those times. And I think Gundy just was like, we can't, I don't know if we can move the ball on them. So like he had to settle for these punts because they didn't want to get the ball back in field position. They had to settle for field goals in situations where I think they would have gone for it. So yeah, no, just, I mean, insanely stellar performance. And again, it's not like, I mean, Tristan Ebner fumbles on like, you know, early on, right. That could have shell shocked him. Abram Smith did not have a great game that could have shell shocked him. And they, the defense just absolutely 
was fantastic. And I think we've seen this year, I don't want to say we've seen the defense get beat this year, but we've seen the defense give up plays to where the offense kind of had to, you know, uh, kind of balance things out. And this was the first time where the offense kind of really stalled out. They really didn't have a lot of options at times against going against another great defense. And I felt like this was the one of the only games this year where the defense told the offense, Look, we got this, right? This is the, the, you can really rely on us because we just need you not turn the ball over, right? Mostly. Um, and Blake Shapin didn't turn the ball over. It was that one fumble from Ebner early on, and that was basically it, so. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest controversy from that game is probably that fourth down uh, mm-hmm. call that Aranda made that sure. to try to really – because, I mean, if they go and they convert that, you know, they may end the football game. I, I think, you know, there was a lot of second-guessing of that call as soon as it happened, right? A lot of first-guessing, you know. Yeah. I can understand the idea of you don't want to go for fourth down, but that's what Aranda's done all year, and that's the type of confidence that bleeds into your football team, right? Like – that defense knows that he trusts them with everything that he has. If he didn't, he doesn't go for those fourth downs in his own territory that way. He trusts his offense with a redshirt freshman enough to go out there and throw 19 passes in the first half. Blake Shapin went 17 of 17 Mm. in the first half to start that game. I don't know if there's a better combination of offensive and defensive mind on a staff in this state than Aranda defensively and Grimes offensively. And so for Baylor, not only do you win that Big 12 title, but if you can figure out a way to start 2022 with both of those guys still somehow on the coaching staff, mm-hmm. you've done an amazing job. And with Texas and Oklahoma leaving the Big 12, possibly by the start of next year, and if not, probably the start of the year after that, Baylor can really position itself as a legit college football power in that conference. They're not going to get outspent anymore, right? They're already overperforming on the football field. Now you put them on equal standing with TCU, Cincinnati, Houston, Texas Tech in terms of pockets. I don't know if there's a better administration out there. Look at basketball. Look at Mm -hmm. women's basketball. Look at baseball. Look at football. Like they hire the right guys. They support those people once they're hired. I think the sky is the limit for Baylor. And this is probably just the start for that program if they can keep Aranda in Waco. And it seems like, Aranda likes Waco. I think Texas could uh, learn a thing or two from from Baylor. <laughs> I was like, like no joke. Like so, like you you always see administrations when they're looking for AD hires or whatever. Like you know, they go get Del Conte from TC who did a great job. I'd be trying to poach that that Baylor administration. It's like who's the who's one of the assistant ADs ready for a promotion? You know, like somebody in that room that's within that's within the decision making realm. Like. Because, yeah, I mean, they've nailed basketball hires. They've nailed the football hires recently. Again, in a time where that program should be on the downturn into, like, the pits of despair, right, after what had happened there. Um, And for them to to turn it around, just, I mean, again, just phenomenal job all around. So I got to, yeah, got to give big credit there. Um, Something less uh, stellar was the last title game. Uh, that we saw, uh, or I guess the last one on this schedule, at least. Uh, Cincinnati, 35, Houston, 20. Uh, first of all, the game wasn't probably that close. Uh, Houston got a late touchdown, but in the third quarter, it, Cincinnati just really kind of flexed their muscles, especially defensively. Uh, Houston could not run the ball at all. Cincinnati got pressure with four the entire game. Cl- uh, Clayton Toon didn't play bad, but he was under pressure basically the entire time. Um, Cincinnati 
to me, the surprising thing was how effective Cincinnati was through the air. Um, they really hit them with the RPOs. De- Desmond Ritter threw for 250, ran the ball, or no, sorry, Desmond Ritter threw for 190, um, ran the ball really well with Jerome Ford, but I still was impressed with how they picked their spots through the air with those RPOs. And like it felt like every big play they needed was just kind of there for the Cincinnati um, passing offense more than anything. And I think, I mean, they neutralized Marcus Jones in the, in the kickoff, uh, kickoff and punt returns. He really didn't do much. He had one good pass deflection against um, Alec Pierce in the, in the red zone. But for the most part, I felt like Marcus Jones was kind of did not have his best game either in the secondary. And, you know, uh, by the time we're recording this Cincinnati, you know, they're in the playoff, we know, and, they kind of showed why, man, that defense is legit. This is a Houston team that was cooking and it kind of didn't matter. It was a, it was kind of a display of why Houston, Cincinnati belongs in the playoff because they, since Houston, again, we talked about how good this Houston team was. I think they were still really good, but I think they just ran up against a force. Yeah. I think this says more about Cincinnati than Houston, right? I mean, that's one of the top four teams in the in the country and Houston's just simply not that Houston's one of the top 20 teams in the country, but they're not a top five team in the country. And we saw why it's in the trenches. Mm-hmm. That offensive line just could not handle Cincinnati's defensive line as the game wore on. And that put Clayton tune in some spots he's not used to, but the thing about sports, we, you know, we like, we look at scores and we watch games and we make these like sweeping generalizations and I'm as sure. guilty as anybody but the, it's just random and small margins, right? It's 14-13 mm-hmm. at halftime. Houston has it at fourth down. Cincinnati goes for it because they can't kick field goals, right? Mm-hmm. Houston gets the stop, and they call this kind of wonky pass interference call on Marcus Jones. Yeah. And, like, and then Cincinnati goes and scores. And then that yeah. next snap offensively for Houston, Clayton Toon throws an interception mm-hmm. where he just doesn't see, see a linebacker. All of a sudden, that's a 14-point swing, and this game's over. You yeah. know, and, and it happened – just like that, you know, and, and so um, while the final score, I don't think looks good for Houston, if a couple things go differently, that Cougars team was playing pretty well, you know. Yeah, the they didn't have half. any turnovers either. I mean, we were talking about how that was one bone we could throw to, to Houston is that the, what they can do with with turnovers. But yeah, Cincinnati didn't have a single one of those. <laughs> that those two plays that pass interference call and then that interception on the ensuing drive by Houston just really flipped that game. And once Cincinnati had the lead, that's just a team that's not going to give it up. They did, they can just strangle mm-hmm. you like a boa constrictor. They can just get tight and strangle you. The thing I will say about Houston, though, you look at that roster, and they're poised to have a tremendous 2022. Yeah. You know, Toon's a junior. Dell's a sophomore. McCaskill's a freshman. They got plenty of guys on that defense who can really play. It'll be interesting to see what Marcus Jones decides to do. Um, so Houston can be a really good game in 20 – or a really good team in 2022. I think they played better than the score, you know, dictated, you know, considering how good Cincinnati is just in football and in all sports, it's just two or three plays one way or the other. It can make something look completely different than it was. And those two plays, I think, looking back, you can really like put a pin in and go, if, if, if that pass interference isn't called, what does that game look like in the third quarter? Sure. Um, instead it became a 21, nothing third quarter for Cincinnati. And from then on, it was over. Yeah, I think that you know that's a good point you make about um, you make about their them in 2022 because the only thing we're kind of really uh, waiting on is kind of how the conference falls out. Obviously, because you know people kind of expect Texas and Oklahoma to move to the SEC in the in 2022. Nothing is official yet. I know that 
uh, the Sun Belt is is looking to add uh, for 2022. They're looking to make their moves um, with uh, uh, Southern Miss, Marshall, and who's the last one? I'm free. ODU um, for from taking them from CUSA next year. They're going to expedite that move. Um, so that's kind of the only right now. That's the only conference realignment news to watch. Um, but if Houston does end up coming to the Big 12 in the in 2022. That's a recruiting boon as well, you know, if the, for to sure up some of those holes that they might have from guys like Marcus Jones leaving. Um, if they stay in the AAC, I mean, at that point, you're still looking at what may, Cincinnati, of course, is going to be there and maybe Memphis in terms of uh, Memphis improving. Uh, they're a fairly younger team this year. Um, SMU is dealing with a new coach. So, you know, if they're there, you know, I, that they're definitely one of the front runners to, to compete in that conference. So we're kind of just waiting to see what the conference layout looks like for them but regardless you still kind of expect them to be a pretty big player in 2022 what i'm curious most about the houston program is if it can do what smu did with transfers sure once they're in the big 12 can houston become that second school for a lot of houston kids right Mm -hmm. you went to texas you went to oklahoma you went to lsu it may didn't work out there for whatever reason come back home can houston become that program because if they can if they can recruit high school as a big 12 team in houston and then sprinkle in two or three quality transfers a year that are coming back home to play locally and get a second shot they can be a real good football program for a long time daniel holgerson can cut his coach's butt off like that that dude for as many jokes as we want to make and you know his personality and the red bulls and all that kind of stuff like he's a really good football coach and like we talked about with baylor with Texas and OU gone, there isn't this huge gap in money anymore, right? These are all pretty similar programs that can afford pretty similar things and can recruit in pretty similar ways. How much will the city of Houston embrace that program? Because when Tom Herman had it really going, they were keeping guys like Ed Oliver in city. If that can start happening again, look out because the yeah. Cougars can be a legit power five contender in a couple of years totally all right let's talk about our last game which was pretty wild and uh i didn't see all of it but i did see the ending uh sam houston 49 incarnate word 42 literally on the came down to the last play where cameron ward was stopped a yard short of uh tying it and continuing to take it to number one sam houston um Mike, you probably you saw more of this game than I did, but how did this game go? How did this game kind of unfold? You know, we talked about it in the preview, right? Mm-hmm. That I thought this was going to be a shootout, and I yep. thought Sam Houston's experience was going to kind of win the day. And that's pretty much exactly what happened. I mean, Cameron Ward is Bailey Zappy, right? Like he yeah. he has that kind of like he's going to be a dude that plays for an FBS program probably next year and surprises the college football world by how many numbers he put up. And we can talk about if he follows his offensive coordinator or his head coach here in a little bit. But, you know, he threw for 481 yards and five touchdowns and a loss against yeah. a team that's won 22 straight now. Um, but for Sam Houston, I, I think the part that really impresses me is the poise that they play with. And that poise comes from experience of victory, right? Like I just mentioned, they were on a 21-game winning streak. They haven't lost since 2019. Mm-hmm. you know and so they, you know they haven't lost since the pandemic has started basically yeah. right and they're defending national champions and so 
you go up a touchdown and you're up, you know, you convert the two point conversion, you're up a touchdown and now you need one more stop and you haven't gotten a stop really in three quarters of football. Cause since the first quarter, they hadn't stopped UIW at all. UIW goes right down the football field. And it, I mean, I, I, I looked at my dog and was like, we're going to overtime, you know, like this thing, <laughs> right. this thing is bleeding into overtime. <laughs> like I'm going to be here for a long time. And instead they come up with the one play. They come up with the one play that they need, and that's championship medal. You know, that that the teams were pretty even. I think yeah. talent-wise, those teams were pretty even. I think the best player on the football field played for Incarnate Word. I, I think Cameron Ward outplayed Eric Schmidt in that football game. Um, but Sam Houston knows that they can win those football games. They did it against SFA earlier this year where they were down 14 in the fourth quarter and came back to win that football game. They know – in tight situations down the stretch, they could win football games. They did it to win the national championship back in the spring. Mm-hmm. They're, they're used to those high-pressure uh, situations in big-time games, and you could see that. You could see the confidence come through. Uh, my hat's off to Sam Houston, and my hat's off to Incarnate Word. What an incredible season for the Cardinals. There was a lot of good football getting played in the city of San Antonio this year. Incarnate Word was part of that. Yeah, and of course, the news broke after the game that Eric Morris was hired away to Washington State to be their offensive coordinator. Um, and it kind of makes you wonder, you know, do, does he try to bring Cameron Ward with him, right? Um, we've talked about we talked about the Bailey Zappi thing and it, kind of how Cameron Ward was, I mean, even last year, it was like, okay, who's this guy who played, you know, for Colum- West Columbia? And like, okay, he's coming in and he's putting up numbers. And so you kind of see... I wonder if he was maybe a victim of the kind of limited scouting that went on in college football last year, right? Where you're like, you're like, man, wh- how did this guy end up at Incarnate Word? And what's, you know, he he seems like a guy who would have blown up pretty big um, if maybe some teams had a little bit more time with him. I don't know. Maybe teams could send people out to see him a little bit more. Or if there was recruiting camps and those kind of right. things where guys can kind of get found that way. And also he played in the offense that run, I, I, in my, I think, I think I'm right about this. They run like the slot T single wing oh. stuff or whatever. Right. So he didn't really get to throw the ball all that much in high school. Can you imagine sure. that though? Right. Like, <laughs> like you go from like running the option in high school to throwing the ball 50 times a game, like the amount yeah. of liberation that must feel as a quarterback. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. I'm looking at, his st- I'm looking at his stats right now. He threw for, I mean, cause you, 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 you try to list like the good stats they had in high school on their bio and all that, but it's like, as both the junior and senior threw for more than 1000 yards as a quarterback, like <laughs> it's like this guy's throwing for 4,000 yards now. And they had to be like, yeah, he kind of threw for a thousand I suggested when the Morris news happened, I suggested that Ward, you know, could follow with him. And I had some Washington State fans in my mentions like, oh, yeah, Ward's going to come replace like an all Pac-12 quarterback. And I looked at the Pac-12 quarterbacks like they had to pick somebody. (laughs) You know, like the the guy that he would be competing against threw for 23 touchdowns to nine interceptions or something. You know what I mean? Like Cam Rising just won that conference as a quarterback. Like, I don't I don't, I don't know what all conference Pac-12 really means or whatever like that. Um, the gap between FCS and FBS isn't as big as people think it is. The, right. the gap between Alabama and Sam Houston is massive. Sure. Right? Sure. But the gap between Vanderbilt, Kentucky, those kind of teams, it's not, it's not that huge if we're talking about individual players. Like there's mm-hmm. quarterbacks in the FCS level that can easily go play. FBS. If you told me that Cameron Ward's starter for Washington State game one next year, 
I wouldn't be surprised at all. And if he throws for another 3,500, 4,000 yards in the Pac-12 next year, I wouldn't be surprised at all. That kid's a legit quarterback who, by where he grew up, through the pandemic, and through the offense he ran in high school, just ended up at a place that probably didn't deserve him, you know? And so if you're an Incarnate Word fan, you know, you thank Coach Morris and Ward for the, for the year and a half that you got, and uh, you hope you can duplicate that success. But those two guys are, are probably not going to be uh, on campus next year. Yeah, I do wonder. I mean, you know, we can end with this. You know, Incarnate Word goes into a coaching search at a pretty good time. I mean, like they're a really interesting program. The city of San Antonio is buzzing for football right now. Do you kind of do you think you go poach somebody off that UTSA staff? Maybe that you maybe want to stay knows the area. Um, UTSA, I don't think they're quite at the spot to where they'll be losing guys to as far as promotions to like head coaching jobs elsewhere in the FBS. And so, do you maybe try to use that as leverage? Right? I don't know if they go get a, I don't know if they go get Barry Lunny necessarily, but like somebody on that staff who's familiar with recruiting, who knows the city, who can kind of maintain that good thing that Eric Morris started. Cause I think we all knew that Eric Morris was in line for some kind of next step. Um, as good as, as, as good as incarnate word was, you know, it was still, it still kind of had, there's still some things to probably facility wise that you can still upgrade into where they probably weren't going to hold on to him for very long. Um, like, you know, as Sam's doing with Casey Keeler or SFA will do with, um, uh, with Colby Carthel for a little bit. But regardless, they're in a good spot now. It's not like they're having, I don't think they have to sell this program to anybody right now the way they probably had to, to Eric Morris. Um, I think they can, that's a, that, that'd be a a really, really interesting hire. I think he's still, I mean, he's probably on that staff at USC that's getting let go. I think last I checked. Um, Yeah. He was a running back coach at USC. Who's again, they just, they're making clearing house there with Lincoln Riley coming in. So Honestly, it didn't work out at Bowling Green for him, or, um, but that might be, again, that's his, that's his bread and butter, right, San Antonio. So I would not be surprised if uh, that, they give him a call. I like that name a lot, actually, um, because, yeah, they're, like I said, they're in a good program to where they should theoretically have the chance to go pick a guy, right? Because Sam's, Sam's leaving, Yeah, right? like, Yeah, that's right. Sam's going to Cusa, yeah. Sam's gonna Sam's gonna be out of the picture FBS wise. So now in the state of Texas, we're talking FCS programs. We're talking Stephen F. and Incarnate Word in terms of the best, right? Or yep. position to be the best. And so if you can hit a home run higher, find a coach with some San Antonio ties who can recruit in that area, that can recruit South Texas, that can build an identity, that's happy to be there for three or four years. Mm-hmm. You could be the next Sam Houston, right? Like it is possible. To, it's a private school with money. Like the, the people that graduate from that school go on to make decent amount of, uh, of money as a living. So you would think there's a donor base to put it back in there. You're in a big market. You know, that campus is closer to downtown San Antonio than UTSA's is. Very right? true. So um, it is in a position, Incarnate Word could be a very interesting FCS program for the next five, 10 years. You just have to replace the guy with another guy and that that's the hard part right is what Baylor's done where you have to continue that like okay we we're going to be a place where if we have so much success that coach is going to leave you have to know who you are but you got to be able to hire the next guy with that money if they can put together another head coaching hire and keep this going I think Incarnate Word's one of those teams that's like perennially in the FCS playoff picture and we're starting to talk about as like a legit program year in and year out. All righty. Well, 
I don't think there was much more news than that. College playoff dropped, but no Texas teams are in it, so I don't really care. Um, I don't know if you wanted to mention the the SWAC championship. Uh, oh yeah, score. Tr- yeah, I've got it right here. Prairie View A and M um, lost to Jacksonville State, twenty seven to ten. I think Jackson I kind of looked State, at the, the Jackson State. Excuse me, sorry. Yeah. Um, I kind of looked at the stats of this game and it kind of went as expected. The first half was just really sloppy. Uh, it was mm-hmm. close, but it was really sloppy. Uh, Juwan passed through, like, I think two picks. Um, and then, of course, Jackson State just kind of carried the rest of the way in the second yeah. half. Uh, kind of what we expected and what we talked about on uh, Thursday. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, like I said, that would, that would have been a really cool opportunity for Prairie View A&M. But I think regardless, that was a pretty cool showcase for the SWAC. Um, I <laughs> mentioned how everybody's kind of benefiting from Jackson state being this good. So um, unfortunately, obviously Prairie View kind of had to be the, the, the fall, the fall guy for that, but um, I'm kind of interested to see the buzz this, uh, the celebration ball gets with South Carolina state. Cause um, you know, again, you have this team pulling off all this buzz and if they complete it, you know, with a celebration ball victory, I think December 18th. Um, I mean, we're talking about something pretty fun here. So um, I do kind of want to see the ramif—I don't say ramifications—the the kind of the trickle down effect from if the Deion Sanders hire ends up being, you know, a championship one for them. Where right now, you know, it's at least resulted in a a conference championship. So uh, let's see. That's probably it, though. Um, light show, but we I like we got to expand on basically everything uh, that happened this weekend. So uh, we'll be seeing the bowl games come out. We'll be seeing. Uh, a lot of uh, placements going on there. I think UTSA is more or less penciled into Shreveport, it looks like. Um, I think North Texas is rumored to get one of the Frisco Bowls Frisco. coming in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we'll, we'll see ex- exactly the matchups that, that uh, go on there, of course. Um, we'll probably have some scattered shows as those bowls roll out, you know, or, or as those bowl results roll out, I should say. Um, there's probably not going to be one show for all the bowls. But regardless, and that'd be like a three-hour show. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say that'd be like yeah, I was about to say yeah, <laughs> not no, fun. Don't, don't do that. But uh, regardless, thank you guys for listening this whole season. We will be back. We're still not done, but like I said, this is the last uh, one week encapsulating recap show. Uh, so thank you guys for listening. Remember, you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate and review. We're still a growing uh, audience, so you know rate, uh, reviews help, ratings and reviews help a bunch uh, on the algorithm. So, uh, yeah, next year let's try to get on that Spotify rap for some people. That'd be that'd be pretty cool. So uh, that would help some ratings. Yeah, that'd that be would awesome. definitely that would definitely help some ratings. If maybe we some money some too, people. some income. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Uh, we'll see. But yeah, thank you, thank you to Mallory, thank you to Mike. We'll see you guys. Wednesday? I don't know. We'll see. There's no previews really going on anymore. So we'll, we'll see what see. the schedule looks we like. We can come that. up with something. Yeah, we'll see what the schedule we'll looks like. We'll do an hour-long Quinn Ewers show. Jesus. Oh, I was, we almost went an entire show without mentioning that Quinn Ewers was transferring from Ohio <sighs> State. Because that uh, – anyway, we might actually do that because – that is, idea. Yeah, we might actually do that because that actually is some huge ramifications of, with the rest of the state because apparently it's down to Texas and Tech now. And I'm, I reportedly is not in the mix, which I didn't know why they would be in the first place. But, yes, that is actually not bad. Quinn Ewers, because the decision may or may not be coming this week. We'll see. That's actually kind of huge. So if it happens then, I'd say that's probably worthy of an emergency podcast. We'll probably talk about it then. Uh, thanks, Mike, for dropping that <laughs> news bit in the grinning. final minute. <laughs> uh, we'll talk to you guys sometime this week with whatever we decide to talk about. <laughs>